and may your spirit be our guide. And above everything, may Jesus Christ be our chief concern. Even so, we pray. Come and may your spirit be our guide. Sorry. On that note, <laughs> on that note, come Lord Jesus. Amen. <laughs> Ooh, all right. If I was to tell myself a year ago that I would be rooted in a new Jesus community, actively serving in that community as Justin seems to have to, and Bloody have death. opportunities like this, ducks flying at this point, <laughs> there would be no way that I would have believed it. Yet the implausible is now reality. And I'm very much grateful, firstly, to God's grace. I don't feel I deserve the love that he's extended to me. Um, and you'll hear a bit more about why and how tonight. But also, and also to each and every one of you. Michelle made the comment this week in a meeting that I've somehow become part of the mosaic furniture in six months. Um, and that is credit to the way you all have welcomed me in. I'm thankful for the vibe, seems like it's a nice buzzword around here, <laughs> and the conversations that I've shared, especially in this locale. And I'm encouraged by Mosaic's emphasis and its journey from beginnings to today. Which brings us to the Radical Root series, our curiosity into the peacemaking tradition of the Anabaptists. We're in the last session of the first mini-series within the series, if that makes sense. Um, we're in the series called Following Jesus in Daily Life. Justin led these discussions with the Anabaptist belief that the decision to accept Jesus began a journey not of faith, but of discipleship, where the focus was not striving to earn salvation, but to show evidence of God's work. Uncle Phil then continued these discussions through the discernment of God's will, through preaching, teaching, and dialogue, where the scriptures intertwined with the conviction of the Holy Spirit us to put Jesus at the centre of our faith. My hope and prayer is that tonight furthers that dialogue in discussing what hinders our discipleship, what hinders our discernment of God's will. Tonight is about what perceivably may be a heavy topic of my knowledge, I won't keep this heavy, I'll tell you that now, <laughs> um, that reside in and around our regular lives. And our response to them in following Jesus in thought, emotion, and deed. And I believe that the Anabaptists and their postures have something to say on the matter. But first, we need to identify what idols are, and I think that'll start with a bit about me. I was born a perfectionist, was a compulsive perfectionist, and I'm currently a recovering compulsive perfectionist. <laughs> Awkward word combination, I know, so I'd better explain that. I was raised by migrant Asian parents who moved to New Zealand many years ago for the joys and the dreams this country has to offer. There was a tension they held in their parenting, for they knew and lived and breathed the stereotypical Asian mentality, <laughs> which in essence was a mathematical formula. Be the best in school, go into university and excel there, start a strong career path, make lots of money and make your family proud. <laughs> Anything less was perceivably not good enough. Um, and this against the New Zealand narrative of curiosity, of creativity, of innovation, of a number eight wire, of balance and of participation. Growing up, I carried the tension and more so leaned towards the Asian mentality that meant studying hard this instilled, with this instilled imperative to be better than everyone else. Success wasn't comparing 
and rising above my circumstances, self-improvement was my mantra. And this brought plenty of academic success, yet instilled beliefs, a beliefs of a complex fear of failure. Feelings with its own residue of guilt and shame. My life revolved around perfection or failure. There was no shade of grey. Each school year would always start with a goal-setting session, my own commands, so to speak. I hated the task uh, because it compelled, I was compelled to set the bar way too high. I remember perfection or failure. These words on a page and printed commands I could not achieve, and the residue of the onset frustration and panic of failure would keep me awake for many a night. Don't get me wrong, I still succeeded in essence, yet that didn't mean the compulsive perfectionist and me wouldn't know it. During these formative years, I was immersed in a large church environment where the posture was excellence, to be the best ambassador and follower of Jesus Christ that I could be. Again, the compulsive perfectionist picked up. In the midst of the superlatives, the altar calls, the commitments and the discipline to meet those commitments, I continued my habit of working hard. That meant commitment to prayer, Bible study, ministry, and corrective action as a means of changing my habits towards God's standards so that he would be proud of my transformation. Again, I was aiming for the seemed mythical, or in hindsight mythical, impossible perfection, and always ended at the other side of my compulsive perfectionism, which was failure. With excess work running me to the ground, these, these beliefs led to feelings of inner embarrassment and my own isolation, which then led to actions. A deep self-hate, anxiety, and deep depravity of the soul. I'll leave the minutia of those dark times, but Phil, when you shared a couple of weeks ago, there was something to me that resonated that I think I could really relate to, and I saw what I thought you saw. Although I talked the dialogue of commitment, I talked the dialogue of promises, in hindsight, I wonder who was at the centre of my life. For all the actions I did, the object of my worship, in hindsight, wasn't actually God. It was actually me. The scriptures remind us how important it is to remove idols from our lives. For these earthly objects and desires pull us away from following Jesus in regular life. It's proxy gods that contradict God's vision for us as followers and also for his world. The first commandment of the team is clear. Do not serve any other gods before him. In the midst of the demonic seduction, while starving and famished, Jesus affirms that commitment to serve the one and true God. What turns us away from this vision is idolatry. Characterized through objects of gratification, Pursuit to perfection, i.e. in work or interest of gratification, was referring to possessions, wealth, etc. Beliefs of definitive certainty, so nationalism or rationalism, or objects of self-indulgence, lust, food, or even this thing right here. The, the Gospel of Mark affirms where the artists begin. It's not mere actions of rebellion <coughs> in chapter 7. In chapter 7, after Jesus responds, the disciples, sorry, not disciples, the Pharisees' criticisms of the disciples' violation of the purity laws, i.e. not washing hands before eating, 
He turned to the crowds and his disciples. And what I'm going to read from is an extract from a translation from Tom Wright's For Everyone series. Um, to me, at the moment, it's given me great comfort, and I think it's informality, um, but also in the tone in which it's said for paraphrasing. So we'll, some of the words will be quite interesting here. Jesus summoned the crowd again. Listen to me, all of you, he said, and get this straight. What goes into you from outside cannot make you unclean. What makes you unclean is what comes out from inside. When they got back into the house, his disciples asked him about the parable. You didn't get it either, he asked. (coughs) Don't you see that whatever goes into someone from outside cannot make them unclean? It doesn't go into the heart, it only goes into the stomach and then carries on out down the drain in response to purity laws or food to clean. What makes someone unclean? He went on, is what comes out of them. Evil intentions come from inside, out of people's hearts. Sexual morality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, wickedness, treachery, debauchery, envy, slander, pride, stupidity. That word, that that was a combined word. I don't know why. These evil things all came from inside. They are what make someone unclean. The commitment to idols to proxy gods away from the scriptures, away from his word, away from his vision for the world, begins from our heart's desires, originating from the curse of Adam, emerging through our formative years into our held beliefs of ourselves, the world, and God himself. I wonder whether we can take, eat, or taste things that can resolve our idols. As Christ lived, as Christ died, as Christ rose again, we require his gift first so that we can overturn the seats that the idols hold in our hearts. I once more return to a point that Uncle Phil made a fortnight ago. We've been doing this a bit today. Um, but looking at Romans 12, Uncle Phil referred to the first verse, and he used both. I'm really going to refer to my bolded part in the middle. Hopefully, that is readable um, on that side there. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Okay. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be, we'll focus on the be, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is. His good, pleasing, and perfect will. The word be in that passage is alluring. Instead of conforming to the idols, the patterns, the commitments, the oaths to change our ways, let us be transformed. Being is not promising as such. Being is not doing as such. For the Anabaptist, when we receive or repent, first of all, and and subsequently receive Jesus into our lives, whenever this takes place, the Holy Spirit, begins its work. As Pastor Darren Petkin noted, it is through death to our former practices, old habits, and bad attitudes that the Holy Spirit is continually making us new as we die to old behaviours and thought patterns so that in their place, life can take root. Jesus knew full well that death was required for new life to begin. He willfully laid down his life 
so that the power of the resurrection can transform us. Our idols reflected through proxy practices, habits and attitudes can only be renewed and transformed by Jesus' resurrection. And further to that, our choice in believing in his testament and the power of the Holy Spirit working in our lives is the being of our transformation. As idols distract us from God's work, the Holy Spirit draws us closer to God's work. And so I wonder where this power fits in our world of pragmatism and self-improvement. In our society, the word idolatry is something out of a historical Greek or Roman textbook. But we sure like talking about self-improvement and well-being. Media and advertising remind us of the dangers of addictions, whether that's smoking or gambling or alcohol or food or technology, I could go on, that can damage our well-being, can our potential to succeed, as well as our relationships with our loved ones. Well-placed advertising shocks, encourages, or inspires the addict and those in need through corrective action, through tried and true programs, methods, and strategies. In particular, reality television presents recovering addicts seeking victory over their addiction, imprisoning their inner feelings, and disciplining their inner desires and thoughts to make change. For some, the obedient and the persevering will be elevated as better people, celebrating the narrative that only the power of the self, that only by the power of the self, did they change anything? With the power of the thinking, their feeling and their doing and their acting, all working together, all powered by the self. Which is why I have a fidget spinner. Of all the things I bring to mind tonight, um, we think of all three parts of the fidget spinner. What's in the middle would be the self. Driving the way in our society to true well-being, inner peace and success. The narrative compels us to commit to promises of change, to beginning actions of self-improvement. The New Year's resolution is this annual ritual around our world of commitment. Yet, I wonder a few things. I wonder whether this narrative has found its way into God's kingdom. I wonder whether the narrative of individualism (coughs) and self-centeredness stands in the way of the Holy Spirit's power. And I wonder what happens to those who have the best intentions but fail to meet the promises that they said. Thankfully, the Anabaptists were also a bit unsure about this commitment narrative. In the Jesus era Jerusalem, where there was swearing of statements and commitments under the names of parents, families, and God himself. Jewish leaders followed the Old Testament commitment to oaths. However, they taught that oaths could be non-binding and without sin if the oath did not swear on God's name. Here's an interesting question. What is an oath with no commitment to violating the oath, I wonder? I'll leave that. Pause. In response, Jesus speaks through the Sermon on the Mount, particularly Matthew 5. Again, you have heard... That it was said to the people long ago, do not break your oath, 
but fulfill to the Lord the vows you have made. But I tell you, do not swear an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, you cannot make even one hair white or black. All you need to say is simply yes or no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. Jesus challenged the masses then and now that our ordinary speech, not just our commitment speech, needs to be as true, as sacred as any oaths, promises, and commitments that we make. Although the Holy Spirit spoke differently, the Anabaptists viewed oath-keeping not through those lenses, but through Jesus' teaching. And let's stop swearing. Christendom, or Christian belief, their refusal to tie oaths got them in quite some trouble. Especially in the submission to God, overruling authority. It does need to be noted that the oath was not condemned entirely, but a point was made to reserve the oath only for the time when God needed to be testified over the ruling, the ruling powers and the ruling principalities. Thankfully, the call the Holy Spirit makes is not solely to oaths or solely to pragmatism. Let me return back to my story I studied from. My compulsive perfectionism upon other inner desires I dared not address sent me in a pretty dark places, a few too many times to count. For years, I was terrified of praying or reading God's word, disciplines that I had in place quite easily back in the day. For that would elicit this instant paralytic guilt due to my perceived failure <coughs> and ill discipline. I felt like the person that went on the biggest loser to lose a bunch of weight, but was eliminated pretty early on for my lack of effort and belief. In the midst of this failure, I was skeptical that God didn't actually love me at all or actually save me at all if I did not meet his virtuous requirements and his virtuous commands. In the midst of my crippling fear and perceived failure, the Holy Spirit somehow, and I don't quite understand how, breathed its way in. It took years of trustworthy counsel, prayer and psychoanalysis to reconcile my inner desires, giving time and space to make amends and peace of them. Don't get me wrong, I haven't come close to getting this perfect at all. But this tension keeps me guessing, it keeps me trusting, and it keeps me humble. That's why I call myself, as I started earlier, a recovering compulsive perfectionist. So the sum of it all is I cannot explain what took place. And I'm a firm believer that I didn't do anything to make this happen. Yet my grip on the center was loosening as the Holy Spirit compel me into its power first and foremost. And from there, actions emerged. And to get there, there was definitely support and prayer from those around me. So I believe that the journey I've shared, in the smallest, <clears throat> minuscule way, 
shows a little bit of the Anabaptist intention of the Holy Spirit coming back to this three-part diagram, coming back to the old millennial fidget spinner, where our thoughts are renewed by the life, teaching, and ministry of Jesus. Then, if we go back to the first diagram of thoughts, feelings, actions, then our feelings are renewed to convey the Spirit's fruits, developing new attitudes and postures. And further to that, then our actions are renewed by giving to and serving others. This is this indeed is reconciliation at work. These changes reflect that indeed Christ and the Spirit is at the center, shaping our thoughts, shaping our feelings, and shaping our actions. Now there is a commitment. I don't I don't want to stand up in front of here and fall into some trap of therapeutic deism that says that God is everything and we are merely passive agents in the process. But the commitment lies in creating the time and space for his Holy Spirit to dwell and challenge our inner desires and motivations. The idols that we do see in our lives and the blind spots we may not realize where they are. <clears throat> to the Anabaptist, the Holy Spirit recenters our thoughts, feelings, and actions, committing to the inner reconciliation of the heart mind and soul the holy spirit speaks beyond individual counsel but rather within a community as well those who have received the same spirit making peace and growing together <coughs> i wonder if this reconciliation this inner reconciliation is indeed necessary because as we begin to comprehend the width the depth and the breadth of his mercy grace and empathy we begin to understand God's vision for peacemaking in, in the wider world we are in. And it's from here that I like to begin a time of discussion, and I'm, and I'm a little nervous about this because I don't know where this has landed in the 20, 25 minutes I've spoken here. I don't know what the Holy Spirit is trying to say to each of you based on experiences, based on context, based on the way you're brought up. However, we've got a fair bit of time tonight, which I'm happy about. I think we've got about half an hour. So, so Justin? Yeah. Half an hour? So this time is yours. So in small groups, I'd say two to four people max. So I've got a couple of questions if you need anything. If there's anything on top, then absolutely talk about that first. But if you need a starting point to further unpack tonight, I've got these couple of questions here. Um, we'll come back together and we'll have a, an open session to talk through some of this, and then I have a few points to, to close our time together. So if we can uh, get into those small groups, that would be great. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, Jim. Thanks, Jim.